Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 121. Today, we are diving into the West Memphis 3 case, which is a super talked about case. Um, yeah, really big case yes. just all around. There's a lot to it. There is a lot to it, and there's a lot of opinions. It's very controversial, and it's been really highly requested. You guys really want to hear Josh's take on it. I know I've done a video on it, but there's so much to talk about, so much to go over. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm I'm excited to get into it. But this week, we do have a bit of a change coming to Mile Higher Podcast. We have decided to switch around the order that we do things a little bit to make it hopefully more enjoyable for the majority of you guys. We are going to put our, well, they're not intro topics anymore. I guess they'll be outro topics at the end of the episode so that we can get right into our main topic for the day. Because a lot of people do leave reviews saying that they wish we got right into things in the beginning. And that's totally understandable. We never really wanted to get rid of it, though, because we knew so many of you guys love our intro topics. So we decided that moving them to the end would be the best solution all around. Yeah, because we know you guys like some of the new stuff mm-hmm. that we cover and just shit we think is interesting that we think you should know about is usually what the topics are. And yeah, a lot of you guys end up skipping it. So we're just like, let's just put it at the end and mm-hmm. jump right into the main topic and just dive in straight away. So that's exactly what we're going to be doing today. But before we get into the West Memphis 3 case, I want to thank our sponsors for today. We've got Candid, Postmates, Quip, and Stamps.com. Appreciate the support during these times. But yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention too is if you guys haven't checked out Lights Out Podcast, would love for you to head on over and uh, listen to some of the episodes I've got coming out on my paranormal kind of darker true crime podcast. We've been covering a lot of different things from hauntings to alien abduction stories to uh, most recently we did a really interesting case of Pazuzu Aldergrad, really, really crazy individual uh, dealt with satanic rituals and just all sorts of really weird stuff. So if you're into that kind of stuff or, you know, some of the spookier content that's out there, definitely check out lights out. We really appreciate it. All right. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the West Memphis three case. So we have a a lot to cover. This is an extraordinarily huge case that took, Mm -hmm. took years to really get through as far as from start to finish from the investigation to the end of it. And I mean, it's really still not over. I mean, this case is still, even though it's technically closed at this point, it's still very much open for, you know, internet sleuths and, you know, all sorts of people that are into this kind of stuff are still looking into it. And we're hoping that perhaps it gets reopened one day because it really should be. It should. So this all started on May 5th, 1993, when three eight-year-old boys, Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers all went missing in West Memphis, Arkansas which West Memphis, Arkansas is located directly across the Mississippi River from Memphis, Tennessee. And it's very, very close to the border between Tennessee and Arkansas. And it's a relatively small town of a population of about 26,000 people or so. So, I mean, yeah, it's there's definitely a smaller place. And, Southern. And, yeah, I mean, this crime and this actual case just completely rocked the community. It did. So let's go over some of the key people here. Of course, like I mentioned before, we have the victims, Steve or Stevie Branch, who was eight years old at the time, 50 inches tall, 65 pounds, blonde hair, last seen in blue jeans and a white t-shirt on a black and red bicycle. Then there was Christopher Byers or Chris Byers, also eight years old, 48 inches, 52 pounds, light brown hair. 
he was seen in blue jeans, dark shoes, and a white long sleeve shirt and was last seen carrying his skateboard. Then there's Michael Moore, eight years old, 49 and a half inches, 55 pounds, brown hair. Last seen in blue pants, blue Boy Scouts of America t-shirt, and he was wearing an orange and blue Boy Scout hat and was on a light green bicycle. And then there's the boy's parents, Melissa and John Mark Byers, who are the mother and stepfather of Christopher Byers, Pamela and Terry Hobbs, the mother and stepfather of Stevie Branch, and then Dana and Todd Moore, who are the mother and father of Michael Moore. And then we also have the West Memphis Three, who are Damian Eccles, Jesse Miskelly, and Jason Baldwin. So these are just the main sort of people in this case. I mean, there's a ton of different names, a ton of different people, but we thought it's important to give you the main, you know, individuals we're going to actually mm-hmm. be talking about. So it's, it's hard to keep everything in order, especially if you've never heard this case before. There's a lot Things of can get very confusing very quickly. So all of these eight-year-old boys were very close friends. They all attended Weaver Elementary School in West Memphis, and they were all Cub Scouts actually at the Wolf level. Now we're actually going to start talking about this case on the actual day that the boys go missing, which again is May 5th, 1993. So according to the timeline at 2.30 p.m., Stevie Branch was checked out of school by his mother, Pam Hobbs. And when the two returned home, his mother asks if he has any homework. And Stevie responds that he did, but it was already completed and then hangs his homework up on the fridge. And at this point, Michael Moore arrives at Stevie's home. Then the kids asked if Stevie can go to Michael's house. And Pam said no, because she was getting ready for work and cooking dinner. But the boys persisted and begged Pam, and she finally gave in. But she tells Stevie that if he isn't home by 4.30 p.m., he will be grounded for two weeks. And then at 3.35 p.m., Christopher Byers arrives at Stevie's home. He asks Pam if Stevie is home, and Pam explains that he and Michael had just left. So Christopher Byers then goes to search for Stevie and Michael. At 4.15 p.m., Terry Hobbs, Stevie Branch's stepfather, arrives home from work. And by 4.45 p.m., Stevie has still not returned home because, again, he was supposed to be back by 4.30. So at 5 p.m., Terry Hobbs takes Pam Hobbs to work and states that immediately after he began looking for Stevie. And then at 6.30 p.m. is the last time that Christopher Byers is seen by his parents. And Mark Byers, his stepfather, begins looking for him. Also at 6.30 p.m., a neighbor states as she was leaving for church She saw the three boys zoom by on their bikes and skateboard and saw Terry Hobbs yelling at the boys. And then at approximately 7 p.m., Christopher Byers' adoptive father, John Mark Byers, reports Christopher missing to the police. So 6.30 p.m. is the last time that any of the three boys are seen by anybody, as Mm -hmm. far as we know. So approximately at 7 p.m., Christopher Byers' adoptive father, John Mark Byers, reports Christopher missing to the police. And then what's interesting is that between 5 p.m. and 9.18 p.m., Terry Hobbs spends time with a man named David Jacoby at his home and states that they were also in the woods all night, obviously looking for the boys. Now, David Jacoby later states that there didn't appear to be any concern over Stevie and that they spent a lot of time playing guitars and just sort of hanging out. He also stated that Terry Hobbs left his home twice by himself and was unaccounted for for up to two hours. So this is very, very interesting and suspicious, and we'll come back to this later on. But it's interesting because Terry Hobbs originally said that he just was out looking for the boys, and yet at some point he stops looking for the boys and then goes and hangs out with his friend. Just playing guitar. Just playing guitar when he knows that his you know, kid is missing. So, mm-hmm. And he might know a lot more than that. Yeah, exactly. So again, more on that later. 
But then at 9.18 p.m., Terry Hobbs picks up Pam Hobbs from work. And Terry Hobbs does not mention that Stevie had not returned home and walks directly to the phone. Pam has two pieces of candy and approaches her daughter, Stevie's younger sister, Amanda, who was in the car that Terry drove there. Pam asks Amanda where Stevie is, and Amanda says, Mama, we can't find him. Pam states that she immediately thought the worst, Mm -hmm. that Stevie was dead. So at 9.25 p.m., Stevie Branch is finally reported missing. The Hobbs Branch family arrive home, and Pam immediately changes out of her work uniform in order to begin searching for Stevie. So a small search was carried out in that evening, covering the woods and around the area of Interstate 40 and a place called Robin Hood Hills, but nothing was found that night. And they're just panicked. I mean, there's three eight-year-olds out there. You just think the worst automatically, especially when there's more than one child missing. That's really concerning. And yeah, it was out of character for them not to come home. Right. I mean, these kids were, you know, did this all the time. They go out, they come back at Uh the specified time their parents tell them. So the fact that all three of them Mm -hmm. hadn't returned was super alarming to their parents. So the next day on May 6, 1993, John Mark Byers, and we'll just call him Mark Byers going on because I believe he Mm -hmm. goes by Mark and not Mm -hmm. John. But Mark Byers, again, Christopher's stepfather, states the local news that the boys had never gone off without telling their parents or had been missing before. So a man named Steve Jones, who is a juvenile officer from Crittenden County, called the West Memphis Police Department and a dispatcher by the name of Lucy explained to him that three children had been reported missing the night before. And so he offers his assistant in search and so he offers his assistance in searching for the boys. And while he was driving, he thought about visiting Robin Hood Trails and went there to search. And at around 1:45 p.m. that day, he looked into a small ditch near Devil's Den and saw a tennis shoe floating in the water. He immediately called the West Memphis Police Department and Officer Mike Allen met Steve Jones at the scene. And this is like a, uh, this area is like a drainage area. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, it's a big ditch essentially filled with water. Kind of looks like a creek. Yeah, so it's really muddy and just, Mm -hmm. yeah, swampy almost in Mm -hmm. that area. So Mike Allen ended up falling into the water while he was attempting to get the shoe And then he felt that his leg was caught on something that he felt like was a log. But then he fell backwards and discovered that it was one of the children's bodies that was caught to his leg. That's fucking terrifying. Yeah. Can you imagine imagine that? No. That's horrific. I know. I'm sure he will never get that moment out of his head. (sighs) Crazy. And that discovery led to the recovery of Steve, Michael, and Christopher's lifeless bodies that were found in the water. Yeah, it's a really, really just horrific scene yeah. when they pulled the boys out. Yeah, I want to just give you guys a bit of a trigger warning before we even go any further. This case is really, really rough. And if you watch any documentaries on it or see some of the footage, like in West Memphis or what's it called? West of Memphis is the HBO documentary. They show some pretty graphic footage. Yeah, the boys' bodies were really in bad shape. They I mean, were. it was a really gruesome scene. So mm-hmm. all three of the boys were nude and bound. They were not really hogtied, but they were tied with their shoelaces. Uh, so they had their arms tied to their mm-hmm. feet. And one of the boys, Christopher, had been sexually mutilated. Uh, dealing with the genital area, he had actually an excision there. Uh, it was pretty, pretty bad. And they obviously had been hit over the head. There was blunt force trauma. There was little cuts and stab wounds all over the place. I mean, it was just a really, really just horrible, horrible scene. 
Clothes and shoes were also found in the water. Some of the clothes pinned down by sticks and two pairs of underwear were never recovered, actually. They found one pair. Um, they also found two bicycles that were also under the water there. And the coroner wasn't called about two hours until after the first body was located. Now, I wanted to read some of the just the coroner's sort of their little summary mm-hmm. that they made about what, what he observed saw. when they went there. So the uh, Crittenden County Coroner report, on May 6, 1993, at approximately 3.20 p.m., I received a call from the West Memphis Police Department that they found the three boys and that they needed me to go to the Blue Beacon truck wash. With me was Ed Poe, an employee of Roller Citizens Funeral Home. Upon arrival, we trekked through the woods to a drainage ditch where the bodies of the three youth were found. All bodies had been removed from the water and were on the ditch banks covered in black plastic. So according to the coroner, the first body was on the east ditch bank. Right hand is tied to right ankle by a shoelace. Left hand is tied to the left ankle by a shoelace. There was lacerations to the head. His notes went on to say that the body was lying on the side. There was lividity in the buttocks and back. Body number two was found on the west ditch bank lying on the left side. The right hand is tied to the right ankle by the shoelace and the left hand is tied to the left ankle. There was lacerations to the face and neck. There was also lividity in the left buttocks and back and rigor had set in but could not tell to what degree due to the limbs being tied. That body was also placed in a sheet and transported. And then the body number three was also on the west ditch bank lying on the right side. Right hand is tied to the right ankle. Left hand is tied to the left ankle. Body has been emasculated, which obviously means the genitals have been mutilated. Lividity in the buttocks and back as well. And could not tell what level of rigor the body was in due to the limbs being tied. And all three bodies showed signs of post-mortem staining on the face and chest. So that was the little summary written by the coroner. So clearly the boys' bodies were in really, really bad shape. And they had been already, I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that they were already showing lividity and rigor mortis. Yeah. They were clearly in that ditch for hours. I mean, mm-hmm. almost a, a full day at this point. But what made this crime scene really difficult, other than the fact that it was just horribly sad and nightmarish to come up and work on but also the scene had little to no dna evidence left because it had all been washed away by the water yeah having the bodies submerged in water definitely does not help with pulling no. dna other people's dna off of the bodies it makes it a lot more complicated mm-hmm. especially back then mm-hmm. dna technology has gotten a lot better it has it's definitely gotten a lot better so according to the coroner they believe that the Children had died somewhere between 6 and 7.45 p.m. I mean, that's a rough window, but Mm -hmm. the time of death, I believe, was 6 p.m. is what they recorded. Uh, So they had been there for quite a while, and it would make sense that their bodies would be in the condition that they are. But the fact that they are tied, their hands are tied to their ankles is very weird. Obviously, the genital mutilation is very weird. So all of these things kind of... According to the authorities, in their heads, they started thinking, well, you know, what what is going on here? This, You know, we've mm-hmm. never seen something like this before. This is very weird. It's kind of out of the ordinary for a murder in this town. So they kind of immediately went a totally different direction with it. And we'll explain that here in a second. But what's also important to keep in mind is that the medical examiner or the forensic pathologist, Frank Peretti, when he performed the autopsies, he concluded that Michael and Stevie had died from injuries and drowning, while Chris Byers had died from his injuries. He also went on to say that Christopher had been cut with a knife, and the knife was used to carry out the mutilation on his body. Police at the time also suspected that the boys had been sexually assaulted. 
it would later be demonstrated that it was highly possible that they were not. And with that being said, a lot of doubt just in general would be cast on all of the statements made by Dr. Frank Peretti because he had actually failed the medical examiner's test twice and did not retake it supposedly due to personal reasons. So he wasn't even board certified. And his conclusions of the boy's injuries and how they sustain these injuries to almost every other medical examiner out Uh there was just wrong, was incorrect. And he got his medical degree from some like online university thing. Which is always, always comforting to know that, you know, the people that are supposed to be, you know, have these positions that you Uh assume are qualified, have the required skills to do the job Uh accurately. Uh And yet here's an example of where this person was just kind of getting by and wasn't even board certified. So you can't even take his word seriously because he didn't even know how to analyze these autopsies correctly. Mm-hmm. So obviously these deaths are just terrifying and devastating for the families and just the whole community is so disturbed by this and worried for their children's safety. I mean, what is this? Is there a killer on the loose? Is this something that's going to happen again? And it didn't take long for rumors to start going around and especially around the fact that there were three kids and the idea that it could be something satanic. And a lot of people at the time started talking about how the number three possibly could mean something, could be satanic. That was kind of the start of the rumors, which that isn't even, there's no validity to that, right? No. And I mean, again, there's a lot of interpretation as far as Mm -hmm. what Satanism is. It just really depends on, on what you, you know, know about it as well as what you believe, but there's not three, three. six would make more sense, right? but the number three, as far as I know doesn't have any real significance. Cause I mean, you could say three about anything and is, mm-hmm. you know, three potatoes, satanic, like three, yeah. just the number, you know, is not necessarily, but six, 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 or I assume they're meaning three numbers in a row, like six, 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 you know, is the devil's uh, mark or whatever. But also this happened on the night of a full moon and gossip started going around that maybe it was someone who wanted to perform some type of ritual, especially because there were these marks on the genitalia area. They thought maybe that was all part of a ritual as well. So that's when the rumors really started going around the community. Yeah, I I think it's the mutilation aspect of it Mm -hmm. and the fact that they were bound the way that they were, that really kind of created that speculation. But it's also the authorities really went that route first as well. They They really truly believed that this was some type of satanic ritualistic murder that just that had just happened. Mm-hmm. And so once, you know, satanic ritual gets out there, the media is going to pick that up and run yep. with it. And that's exactly what happened is as soon as they heard that that was getting blasted out to everybody in the community. And that was really the the main path that they were going to go as far as looking for suspects is this had to have been somebody that was performing a mm-hmm. satanic ritual of some sort And it involved killing these three boys. And it was because we were in this era of what they call satanic panic, too. You know, a lot of judgment and lack of understanding when it comes to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the whole thing is like people are so completely misunderstood by this. Is there, you know, types of sacrifice in some parts of Satanism? Sure. But does it involve humans? No. You know, most of the time. And again, with any religion, when you look at any religion for that matter, Christianity, Islam, you look at any of the other religions, there's always branches off of that, right? Mm -hmm. There's extremist groups of every religion. So Mm -hmm. obviously in the history of time, there probably have been people that are devil worshipers, satanic Mm -hmm. related that have killed people or murdered people. I mean, in fact, I talked about one in my last lights out episode 
but that doesn't mean that that person is a representation of that religion, right? That's just the choice that they made. So the fact that the authorities and investigators were really going hard on this was, was just wrong. I mean, it's not the right way to go about an investigation. They're just assuming that it's very salacious. It's very salacious. And they're just assuming that that is what happened when Mm -hmm. in reality it could be a million other things. So with the idea that this was some type of satanic ritual killing of some sort, the police department called upon Jerry Driver, who was a juvenile officer at the time. And he was brought in because he knew a lot about Satanism and the occult and cult connections and was asked to literally make a list of people he knew on probation that had any sort of connection to this type of activity. And this is when this particular person, Jerry Driver, first Mm -hmm. thought came to his mind was Damien Eccles. And as soon as he thought of Damien Eccles, he thought of who does he run with? Well, it's these two other boys named Jason Baldwin and Jesse Muskelly. So this is literally how the authorities, the police get their suspect of Damien Eccles. It's not from mm-hmm. forensic evidence at the scene. No, nope. it's not from interviewing witnesses. It's, it has nothing to do with the actual it's from the crime rumor itself. Mill. It's literally, yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's from the rumor mill. So let's talk a little bit more about Damien Eccles. So he grew up pretty poor and was living with his family in a mobile home at the time. He was a high school dropout and was largely characterized as a bit of an outcast. Well, you got to think that Damien Eccles in a town like West Mm -hmm. Memphis, if you're an individual who mainly wears black clothing, has long hair, tattoos, even had one across his knuckles that said evil Mm -hmm. and listened to heavy metal, black metal music in a place like this, you definitely are going to have some people are going to be judgmental towards you. Absolutely. And I mean, especially since he had evil tattooed on his knuckles, I mean, that doesn't really mean anything. You can tattoo whatever you want on your body. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make you what your tattoo says, but people in this type of town are going to take that and run with it and start to judge an individual based upon how they look. So from the outward appearance, Damien Eccles does kind of look like an individual who might be into some dark shit, might Mm -hmm. like dabble in the occult and, you know, dabble into Satanism and potentially ritualistic practices and things like that, which he did, but that's because he was, into the religion of Wicca and, mm-hmm. you know, look, definitely looked which is into so misunderstood. Yeah. Which is completely different from Satanism in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, Wicca is very, very different, but yeah. people get the symbolism confused a lot. Mm-hmm. People get, you know, the pentagram is like the most controversial symbol out there. I feel right. Like, because people automatically assume that if you've got a pentagram, that means you're a Satanist, which is not true whatsoever. Just because the Satanism religion uses the pentagram doesn't mean that that symbol is evil by any stretch of the imagination. And so he was, you know, living this sort of alternative lifestyle and was really into, you know, magic. I mean, that that's the main thing about it is that he was really into magic and the occult is all about hidden knowledge and magic and things like that. So that's what he was into. And, you know, that coupled with his appearance, you know, the long hair, mm-hmm. the black hair and the you know, black clothing and the heavy metal music. A lot of people are, I mean, I mean, this is just kind of funny to me because I literally kind of looked like this to some extent, my senior year of high school too. Like I was wearing like metal shirts. I had my ears gauged like, and I do feel like people do judge you though. Right. People do judge you about that. Mm -hmm. So because people think you look tough, Oh, he's kind of trying to be this tough guy or whatever. And so I think that type of person is normally one of the most misunderstood people. Absolutely. And just because what you listen to is sounds like violence or Mm -hmm. death or whatever, 
that doesn't mean that you, that translates into the physical world. Mm. And unfortunately for Damien Eccles, that's exactly what happened to the, him is that they, they're like, this guy fits the profile of the type of person that would commit these crimes that would do these ritualistic evil murders, acts on evil these acts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's got evil tattooed on his knuckles, so mm-hmm. it's gotta well, it be fit Damien. The narrative. And there was so much pressure on the police to, you know, solve this and figure out who did this to these children in the community. So they're like, hmm, this narrative could work. Yeah. Well, and also they looked at his history as well, because Damien had once been charged for burglary after he and his girlfriend broke into a trailer. He also spent time in a psychiatric hospital in order to treat depression and suicidal tendencies. And some sources claim that he made drinking human blood uh, a part of his, you know, ritualistic uh, things that he did because they gave him powers. Again, this is an unsubstantiated claim. We don't know Mm -hmm. for sure if he ever drank human blood, but that was just one of the rumors that was going around was that Mm -hmm. he did that. So there you go. There's another reason for him to have done this crime. So on top of struggling with mental health issues, Damien also had an unexpected child with his girlfriend at the time, 17-year-old Domini Tier. So to investigators, they kind of took all this, all this history, and they were like, okay, this fits the profile of the type of suspect that we're looking for. Not only that, but Damien and Jason Baldwin were also best friends. And Damien described that they were like brothers and that they did everything together. In particular, they shared their love of music. So they both listened to heavy metal together. Except Jason at the time was still in school and he was actually excelling when it came to art. Right. So he kind of gets becomes guilty just by association with Damien Eccles. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's really nothing about Jason to me that screams that he fits a profile of a killer whatsoever no. at all. Like there's just nothing other than he listens to heavy metal music. Like what the hell? Jason and Damien had also known Jesse Muskelly from school as well. So that's how they, they were all kind mm-hmm. of just friends and they, they would hang out and do dumb mm-hmm. shit together and do things that every other teenage guys do when, with their friends. So really nothing out of the ordinary. It's not like they had this like, really crazy violent past together where they were doing all this crazy shit. And, you know, people like to accuse Damien of, you know, killing animals for sacrifices and things like that. And I mean, even if he did do that, that, that doesn't make him a killer. That didn't mean by any means. that he did this. Right. Yeah. This particular you still have crime. To have evidence for a crime. Exactly. But I don't even know if that's true. I mean, he denies a lot of what has been said. There's so many rumors about him. Mm-hmm. How much do you know at the end of the day about him? Truly? Absolutely. But police really just put everything else aside and zeroed in on Damien Eccles especially. And they questioned him several times during the month of May. In fact, they questioned him on May 7th, May 9th, and May 10th. And Damien maintained that he did not know the murdered boys. He said that he was home the night of the 5th with his mom and was speaking with some female friends over the phone. However, Damien reportedly failed polygraph tests which of course would not be brought in as evidence, but created suspicion on behalf of the investigators. Again, that doesn't prove anything either. Like Mm -hmm. polygraph tests we all know are, are, yeah. Normally they're not even used in court. No, they're not admissible in court because of that very reason. They're Mm -hmm. so unreliable. And not only that, Damien Eccles was definitely that person that was like, fuck authority, you know, kind of an anarchist, like just did not Mm -hmm. like any sort of authority figures, government, police, definitely not a fan of any of them. So of course he's going to be like, I didn't do it. Like, Mm -hmm. fuck you. Like, Mm -hmm. fuck your test. I'm not going to do this. So that's exactly what he did. But authorities are like, oh, this is just further evidence that he had to have done it. Now what's important to note about this case is that 
the police did not do their job. Again, they did not do their job throughout this entire thing. And the way they conducted this investigation was very dirty. They definitely went, you know, whatever way they had to in order to get the evidence that they needed to pin these murders on Damien Eccles. It wasn't even about actually solving it. It was how do we make them the ones who did it, you know? Right. That was right. What Again, there's nothing tying Damien Eccles or Jason or nothing. Jesse nothing. to the three boys. Police actually had a neighbor of Jesse Muskelly's, Vicki Hutchinson, agree to act as a covert informant in order to gather more information on Damien. She said Jesse had previously told her about Damien, which that's where they got the information about him drinking blood. Mm -hmm. And Vicky decided that she would get intel by having Jesse introduce her to Damien. So, so that's exactly what happened is Jesse connected Vicky with Damien. On June 2nd, 1993, Vicky actually told authorities that Damien had taken her and Jesse to an SBAT or a COVID meeting, which is just what Wiccans call a meeting like a church service practically. That's a, another, I guess, way you could kind of put it. It's like it's Kinda. a, yeah, sort of. Obviously, it's not the same thing, yeah. but to help you understand, mm -hmm. it's just a meeting of other witches and, and Wiccans. So she said at that particular meeting, the participants had their faces painted and undressed in preparation of what seemed to be an orgy, which the authorities literally took what Vicky was telling them about what she had experienced supposedly as evidence against Damien for these crimes. Vicky also said that in a conversation with Damien, they discussed him being the suspect in the murders. And Vicky asked him why police would choose to focus on him. She said that he just looked at me, and I mean just really weird, and said, because I'm evil. Hmm. Like, what the fuck? Like, Even if he said that, he could have been like sarcastic. And that's the kind of person he was, yeah. is he would say shit like that mm -hmm. just to fucking get a rise out of people. Because he knew that, yeah. you know, he comes across a certain way to people. So he likes that. He, he likes that sort of attention that he gets for acting like that. Now, we'll revisit Vicky later because she did end up taking a polygraph test and the results indicated that she was telling the truth. But later on, things changed for her. Now, on May 19th, 1993, Mark Byers is brought in by detectives and interviewed. And they basically tell him that we know something that connects you to the boy's murder. And Mark Byers is like, what do you mean by that? And just denies mm -hmm. all everything that they tell him. And the detectives actually end up extracting 30 pubic hairs from him for testing. So it's interesting that as hard as they were going at Damien Eccles, they were all, you could tell that there is some questioning happening mm -hmm. about, well, maybe it's not them. Cause generally in crimes like this, you want to look at the people closest mm -hmm. to the victims, like children that are murdered. You definitely want to look at the, the parents. That's and just like common sense. And when you have three kids, there's more people who could have possibly been involved. Right. So it only makes sense that the investigator should be looking at the parents of these mm -hmm. children because you have to. I mean, it's interesting that they went so hard at Damien at first, but then they're also considering, you know, Mark Byers mm -hmm. and I don't know. So with the support of Vicky's statement, police decided to question Jesse Miss Kelly the next day on June 3rd. So they picked him up at nine that morning with permission from his father to go to the station. However, Jesse was not accompanied by his parents or an attorney during his entire questioning and interrogation. Which is just fucking wrong. It is. Never want to do that. Especially because Jesse had a lower IQ of 72 and he actually qualifies as having an intellectual disability. 
So he definitely should not have been interviewed by himself because he was extremely manipulated. Yeah. Well, I mean, they bring him in and they interview him all day long. Except for they only recorded conveniently a section of it. Yeah. And according to the police, they try to act like they didn't know that Jesse Muskelly had a disability. But it's like if you listen to him Mm -hmm. talk, it's pretty clear that... He clearly is a little bit slower. He definitely has a, a, a disability of some sort. Yet they have him in there interrogating him. Not just, they like to say questioning, but it's really an interrogation if you're there all day long. Yeah. And they essentially break Jesse down to the point where eventually he gives a confession where he mainly incriminates Damien and Jason by saying that they had attacked the boys and saying that he himself didn't kill them, but he did help hold on to Michael when he tried to run away. So you saw Damien strike Chris Byers in the head. Right. What did he hit him with? He hit him with his fist and bruised him all up real bad. And then uh, Jason turned around and hit Steve Branch. Okay. And started doing the same thing. Then the other one took off. Michael uh, Moore took off running. So I chased him and grabbed him and held him to they got there and then I left. Okay. All right. When you get the boys back together, where are you at from the creek? I was up by the uh, service road. Up by the service road? Okay. Now, when this, when he hits the first boy, where are they at when he, when he hits him? Are you in the woods? You on the side of the big bow? You out in the field? Where are you I at? I was in the woods. In the woods. Okay, you've been down there in those woods before. Can you describe to me what in those woods, what's the location where you were? Uh, Is there a path you go down? I was down in no path. All right, where does that path go to? It leads out there close to the uh, field, close to the interstate. When Damien first hit the first boy, did they have their clothes on then? Mm-hmm. All right, when did they take their clothes off? Right after they beat up all three of them and beat them up real bad. Beat them up real bad. And then they took their clothes off. Mm-hmm. And then, they, then they tied them. Then they tied them up, tied their hands up. They start screwing them and stuff, cutting them and stuff. And I saw it and I turned around and looked. And then I took off running. I went home. But while they were interrogating him, they were really pushing him in certain directions. Like, for example, at first they said, at first Jesse had told them that this was around four or five o'clock. And then they were like, well, are you sure it wasn't like six or seven or eight maybe even? And then they're like, okay, so it was eight o'clock. And like they kept prompting him, feeding him information. And he was so desperate to get out of there because he had been there for so long that he would have said just about anything because he wanted to leave. And I think in his mind, he thought, okay, I'll say whatever I have to say right now, but I'll clear it up later. I just got to get out of here. Cause he's freaked out. He's by himself. And I wonder why his parents let him be there for so long. Like, God, if I were his parent, I'd be at, at least at the police station if they weren't letting me back there. But I mean, this was a mess that, cause it, it really changed the outcome of this whole case. His interview became their strongest piece of evidence. Yeah. The confession is literally Mm -hmm. their main piece of evidence and the strongest piece that they have. I mean, in any case, if you can get a confession, Mm -hmm. that's always 
going to help you when prosecuting the case. But again, in this situation, it's really clear that there's misconduct by the detectives mm -hmm. in the way that they're interrogating him and the way that they're attempting to get a confession out of him. Just go ahead and listen to the way they talk to him and how his confession ends up coming out. When you three were in the woods and then the little boys come up, about what time was it when the boys came up to the woods? I say it was about five or so, five or six. Right, who tied the boys up? Uh, Damien. Did Damien just tie them all up or did anyone help Damien? Or? Jason helped him. Okay. And what did they use to tie them up? A rope. How did the boys get in the water? They uh, pulled them in the, to the water. All right, when you say they, who who is it that pulled them to the water? Jason and uh, Daniel. How did they keep the boys quiet? Put their hands over their mouths. And again, you got to remember that they only recorded certain segments of it conveniently. It's almost mm -hmm. like when they brought Jesse in, they already knew ahead of time that they were going to keep him there until they got the information that they needed from him. Well, they straight up admitted it in the HBO documentary. They admitted that Jesse was a huge part of their case and they needed him to corroborate their story right. in order for them. Cause otherwise their There's case no was too weak. There was no way. Yeah. No way to go after Damien Eccles, mm -hmm. which is so weird. It's like, why did they have such a, it doesn't make sense to me that they didn't want to actually solve the case. Like why they go this easy route of trying to just get the easiest suspects to pin these murders on like mm -hmm. this, this, this crime shocked this entire town. I mean, when Pam Hobbs found out that the, her son yeah. had just been pulled out of this ditch in the condition that he was in, I mean, that, the, that scene that, yeah, that, that footage is heartbreaking because she just collapses to the ground. She's screaming and crying mm -hmm. like so painful this is horrific and to hear the details around this i can't imagine how you'd feel as a parent hearing what their the end of their life was probably like it's terrifying and they're angry and they want someone to go down which i understand but what and you this want is the right person exactly and what what's in it for the police to do things the way that they did and go after damien eccles jesse muskelly and jason baldwin why not conduct a real investigation and go after everybody figure out who this actually and actually was. figure yeah. out like, are they just not capable of doing this? So they just thought like, we're just going to go with what's easiest or literally it's just bad advice. Like they just, that Jerry driver guy just happened mm -hmm. to know, like it's just kind of all I think it's a mix of everything and, yeah. and public pressure to want to, you know, get whoever this was behind bars. Yeah, and, and fast. I guess that was mm -hmm. the main thing is they right. didn't want to spend the time to do a long, drawn-out investigation. No, and because and people don't want these predators still out there. Right, right. That Yeah, that's very true. I, I think it was a time. Time is of the essence. Mm -hmm. And after going to the scene, I think they knew that this was going to be an extremely hard case mm -hmm. to crack because mm -hmm. there was little physical evidence. There was no DNA evidence. So they were like, what's the easiest way to get the community to calm down? Let's put people behind bars. So that's exactly what they did. With that confession from Jesse, which is pretty damning when mm -hmm. you hear it. Yeah, it is. Because if what he was saying is true, then yeah, that that's pretty much all you need right there to at least bring charges against people. And and so that's what they did. On June 3rd, 1993, almost a month after the murders took place, 
they arrested the three teens, Jason Baldwin, who was only 16 at the time, Jesse Miskelly, who was 17, and Damien Eccles, who was 18 years old. And obviously, this is why they're known as the West Memphis Three. What's also crazy, though, is that this confession that is like this evidence that's going to be, you know, help their case be slam dunk when it comes for the trial, it gets transcribed and then leaked to the commercial appeal, which caused this, you know, immediate media exposure and the entire world knew Mm -hmm. what had happened, which to me, I'm just like, who leaked this? And what could it have been the actual police department itself that leaked this confession? Because how else does this get out? That's what I was going to say. I think that they probably leaked it because especially if they knew that their case maybe wasn't the strongest against these three men and that, Mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't a slam dunk that they had to do something like this. They're like, oh, well, we have this confession. And if we can release this and everyone's going to believe that, you know, this is the guy, he said it himself. So I Mm -hmm. think that they definitely could have released it just to try and make their case seem more solid and make people believe them more wholeheartedly. And scare the community and try to get people to just support them Mm -hmm. in this trial. Exactly. Which if that's true, it's a smart move on their part because if you can get the community to rally behind you and the government and law enforcement, then it's going to be a lot easier to go to trial and try these three guys versus if they didn't know about any, any of this and it only came out during the trial. So, you know, you get enough people riled up about it. You can get, get things done. And I think they knew that. Plus I think for the most part, you know, society wants to believe police that they're doing the right thing and that they know what they're doing. And so if police come out and are like, look, we got these guys and we have this, um, you know, evidence here of him, you know, admitting to doing this. then I think the majority of the public's going to be like, Oh, well shit. You know, why would, why would they question that? He said it, the police are doing their due diligence and Mm -hmm. you know, case closed. And it's really hard just as the average person to wrap your head around the idea of false confessions and police coercing you into saying something, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the average person thinks if I was in that position, I would never confess to something I didn't do. That's like, how could that happen? And so I think, you know, that's really hard for people to accept that he could have said something and he did. That wasn't true just because he didn't want to be there or because he felt pressured and, you know, he was totally manipulated. And this is something that happens all the time. Most recently I covered in that Brooke Schuyler Richardson case, you know, they convinced her to admit to burning her baby with a lighter and trying to cremate it. And it was all, it was all fake. It didn't actually happen. It was proved that it was fake. I mean, this is common And it's hard to understand sometimes, but if you're in that position and you're scared and you're being interrogated and you just want them to leave you alone, you just want to agree with anything that they're saying. Well, and in some cases they even threaten you though. Yeah. That's the thing is it it can get bad. Like they'll be Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, we'll put you in prison for the rest of your life. You could face a death penalty. And who knows mm -hmm. what was in those other, you know, in the times that they weren't recording. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could have been like, I didn't do this crying. It could have been like yeah, complete opposite of what actually got leaked out to the public. Probably much worse. Yeah. But obviously this confession coming out that, you know, all the, these three, these three teenagers did these horrific acts to these children. Everybody's up in arms. Everybody's like, you know, these are works of the devil. I mean, Dave, Damien Eccles himself is, is the devil. And, you know, the idea of satanic rituals just only furthered from that and that this was really just a, an act of evil by these three. 
So in the pretrials, the presiding judge, Judge Burnett, decided that Jesse Miskelly should be tried separately because of his incriminating confession and that all three should be tried as adults and not juveniles, which I will never understand why they do that. Why? They're still juveniles. There's so many cases where they do that and I just don't get it. See, this is my thing with the criminal justice system is like, what is the point of having laws that are written a certain way? That's, you know, if you're under 18, you're charged, you're charged and, and, uh, you know, put on trial Mm -hmm. as a juvenile yet. Why do all of these, you know, the prosecutors, the DAs, the judges have the authority to go around that and just off of their, their judgment Mm -hmm. can change the law essentially. And why is it on a case by case basis? Yeah, exactly. Some people are, some people aren't. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. So that's not fair. How is that? How does that make any sense? Exactly. Well, when you think about it, judges really aren't fair at all. No. There's nothing fair about a judge. The law is supposed to be fair. But if the people that are upholding the law aren't, you know, executing the law the way it's supposed to be executed, then what is the point? Mm -hmm. And and that's like my biggest thing. And that's why the criminal justice system is broken is because laws get... You know, there's all these gray areas and prosecutors, Mm -hmm. DAs and judges can, depending on the climate of the public or the political, their own political gain. Or like the severity of the case. Yeah, they can change and manipulate things and bypass. It just doesn't make any sense. I think children should be tried as children. I mean, there is a reason why they have that law in place. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it doesn't matter. But if you end up getting, you know, if you're involved with a murder case, then automatically you get tried as an adult. Like, Mm -hmm. what's the point? Like, maybe you should rewrite the law then if if that's the case. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. But the reason that the separate trials were decided upon is because of the standards set by the Bruton rule, which establishes that one co-defendant's confession when not given as testimony on the stand cannot be used in a shared trial because it would affect jury perception of the other defendants, Mm -hmm. even if it was said to only implicate the confessing individual, which that makes sense. Jesse's confession also could not be used in the other boys trial and that he would have to testify against them at court if his statements were to be used to prove the guilt of Damien and Jason. But before we get into Jesse's trial, which began on January 26, 1994, we'd like to thank our first sponsors for today. All right, so Jesse's trial began on January 26, 1994. And Jesse's defense, their job was to prove that his confession was false and gathered under coercive conditions while the prosecutor maintained that it was the truth and that Jesse should be recognized as an accomplice. Now, Jesse had already recanted his confession at this point, and his legal team said that he was coerced. But the prosecution said that Jesse gave it willingly and with knowledge of his rights, so it should be admissible in court and used to convict all three of them, which is just crazy. Yeah, and and from what I remember, I believe he recanted his confession like almost right after he gave it. He did. And pretty soon after. Yeah, they don't have that on, on footage. Not only that, but it came out in court that Jesse was shown a picture of one of the bodies before the confession was demonstrated for the defense. Also, it came out that a picture of one of the bodies before they got the confession out of Jesse was shown to him. And that, you know, adds extra stress to someone in fear that could possibly, you know, make you end up falsely confessing. Right. Which is what his defense argued. And and I think anybody would probably 
you know, bend under that. Cause that's, yeah, that's intense stuff. But yeah. the prosecution said that the photo was just a common strategy to keep people talking, which I don't know. I don't know either. That's a bit much, especially in this case, because these photos are brutal. And they started pointing out some factual errors and inconsistencies in his statements that they put into question. And one of the primary ones was about the time. I mentioned this earlier that he gave them a different time and they kind of coerced him into giving the right time. So when he was first asked about when the murders took place, he originally said noon, which wasn't even possible because the boys were still at school. The detectives asked if it was then after school, you know, like kind of they led him. Right. Yeah. And the defense argues that this shows that investigators were feeding him information and trying to make his timeline fit, which they absolutely mm -hmm. were. Yeah. Not only that, he also refers to the bindings that were used on the boys to be made of rope and not shoelaces, which mm -hmm. come on. I mean, that's a big, a big detail to, to mess up. It was also pointed out in court by experts that false testimonies are likely to be given by individuals with low IQ because they want to get rid of the immediate stress of the interrogation. And just, you know, he's just thinking about right now, how can I stop them from coming at me like this right now? They obviously want me to tell them this. Maybe if I just do, they'll leave me alone. Yeah. In which the prosecution just maintained that the main aspects of his confession were true, even though there was a few details that he just got confused, mm -hmm. which I'm just like, who believes that? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Basically, anything that the defense used in order to defend Jesse Miss Kelly, the prosecutors just shot down. Mm -hmm. uh, and that included not being aggressive, not yelling at him, also disputing, you know, some of the coercion techniques that they used in order to force confessions. They pretty much just, yeah. Shit on their whole defense. Yeah. And after jury deliberation, Jesse Miss Kelly was charged with first-degree murder of Michael Moore, second-degree murder of Christopher Byers, and second-degree murder of Steve Branch on February 5th, 1994. And he was sentenced to life plus 40 years in prison. Based upon a forced confession, pretty much. And no evidence, no yeah. DNA. Physical evidence. No What's physical, the physical evidence? evidence. That's crazy to think about. I know, and it definitely makes you question that jury. Yeah, absolutely. Like what the fuck? And yeah, I mean, they gave him life plus 40 years based mm -hmm. upon, you know, yeah. potentially a completely yeah. bullshit confession of his. Like, and this doesn't look good for Damien and Jason either. I no. mean, they're freaking out at this point and their defense team is already freaking out because now they have the person who gave the confession and their only real defense is that it's, you know, a false confession. So this is really concerning for Damien and Jason as well and their defense teams who are getting ready for trial because... Now Jesse has been convicted in a court of law and they said, you know, it doesn't matter about your testimony. What you said is what you said. And that story, if it's being held as truth, that means that Damien and Jason have a good chance of also being held guilty. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense if one of them does and the others don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was already, their fate was already decided yeah. prior to their trial. Absolutely. This was not going to be a fair trial whatsoever. Mm -mm. And, you know, the prosecutor whose name was John Fogelman, uh, he, he went ahead after, you know, prosecuting Jesse Muskelly went in to prosecute Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin. So then on February 28th, 1994, Damian and Jason's trial begins. Now, the prosecutor set out to portray Damien as sort of the mastermind mm -hmm. ringleader of the three. And Jason had been given the option to testify against Damien in exchange for a reduced sentence, but refused to do so. Mm -hmm. He was a really good friend. They mm -hmm. were very, very close. Mm -hmm. 
and he just, I think he knew like, this is unfair. Mm -hmm. This is like, why would I go testify against my friend? I guess at that point though, you're so desperate that if it looks like you're going to be screwed either way, like, would you maybe make something up just to get your sentence shortened? You know, I think a lot of people would have done that and they thought that maybe he would, but no, he was a really true friend and wanted the truth out there above all else. Yeah. And he really stays true to that throughout his life. He does. Jesse was also offered deals to reduce his sentence in exchange for testifying against them, but he also refused to do that. So during Damien and Jason's trials, John Fogelman really pushes the satanic Mm -hmm. occult angle to things, and he calls in an occult expert, supposedly, who cited black nail polish on fingernails, dyed (laughs) black hair, black clothing, and tattoos as signals of a possible connection to a satanic cult. (laughs) That is such stereotyping. Oh, my God. What the fuck is that? If you look like one, you must be one is yeah. pretty much the saying mm-hmm. as it goes. Mm-hmm. And then he also brought up the whole thing about the full moon, the night of the murders, and how that's related to occult beliefs of mm-hmm. holidays and special times of the year, which is bullshit. That's mm-hmm. not even true. The full moon's celebrated, but it's just so inaccurate. And I mean, again, like in all types of religions and you know different types of lifestyles, there's always going to be things that other people are going to take literally mm-hmm. when they're meant to be, you know, figuratively or mm-hmm. metaphor or something like that. Cause I mean, there are, you know, different types of rituals and things like that, that do involve mm-hmm. blood either from animals or, you know, maybe even humans, depending on which book it is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you go out and do those things. Right. Just because mm-hmm. a book says to do it. I mean, it's not like it's everything like in the Bible the you go out and do, right. you know, it's right. And the fact that just because this is, you know, dealing with the occult or, you know, Satanism, it automatically gets put into play as if this is exactly what they were doing. You know, they were like following an instruction manual about committing these, doing these blood mm-hmm. sacrifices of these children on a full moon. And that's literally what they portrayed to yeah. the jury. Yeah. And they said that these occult books that, they were referencing in court would talk about blood being consumed or bathed in to make your blood like younger and purer. Right. Um, and that Damien did this with absolutely no proof that he's did. He's done this This is a complete fake narrative. Yeah. And then they also went and got his private book of his that had a Wiccan pentagram on the front and it also had an upside down cross in it, which they call black witchcraft and they would go and read from his journals to the jury, just straight out of his, like basically like taking your diary and reading all of these internal thoughts and feelings. And I mean, everybody can say crazy things. Everybody can, you know, and, and there, there was stuff in there that would definitely make like some people question mm-hmm. like, what, is there something wrong with him? Like, mm-hmm. what's he doing? But at the same time, it's like, we all say things, you know, that we don't necessarily mean or would ever act on or Maybe there's things in there that are questionable to other people that make complete sense to you. Like, for example, he said he sacrificed 150 children in one year, but he was referencing the number of times he had ejaculated without causing a pregnancy. Right. It's just about the way. It was like sarcastic and. The way you write things too. But obviously things like that can be taken the wrong way. Exactly. Yeah. They, and they just basically presented Damien Eccles Mm -hmm. as Damien Eccles to the jury, just saying that all of his things that he was into, the books he liked to read Mm -hmm. by Stephen King, Anton LaVey, 
Alistair no, Crowley. Yeah, just knowing about him, mm-hmm. like incriminated him. Yeah. And that <laughs> he was somehow, you know, obviously guilty of the mm-hmm. same acts that some of these other people did, Alistair Crowley and Anton LaVey and things like that. And mm-hmm. just like, if you're not knowledgeable about those things and you look at these individuals from an outward appearance, you're automatically going to assume super misunderstood. They're, they're evil and they're going to be doing all of this crazy shit, human sacrifice. But at the end of the day, it's like, you don't really know even what you're talking about. Why are you presenting that to a jury? Vicky was at the trial as well. And she testified about Damien taking her to that S bat, which is, you know, described as a satanic meeting. Yeah. The, just the meeting of, of Wiccan followers, which is just like, mm-hmm. what is that? That, how does that have anything to do with the murder of three children? There's nothing, there's nothing tying the two together. The, the state or the prosecution just really brought anything they could that would make Damien Eccles look evil mm-hmm. and look like a person that could do evil acts to these three boys. On the other hand with Jason, Jason was extremely pissed that he was never asked to testify. He wanted to testify mm-hmm. and for his, yeah, he was like, let me go up there and tell mm-hmm. them that I have nothing to do with this. Especially cause once you hear Jason talk, you're yeah. like, wow, what a normal dude. Like, right. He you're seems like, like a really nice guy. How did he even get wrapped in, yeah. into this in the first place? Mm-hmm. He was friends with Damien. So therefore yeah. he somehow participated, mm-hmm. but his defense team told him that he should lay low. Yeah. They took like, which in cases like this, that was mm-hmm. a, bad decision it could have completely screwed him yeah definitely did also what else screwed him was the testimony of michael roy carson and carson who had been at a juvenile detention center for burglary at the same time as jason had said that jason had confessed to him to the murders going into detail about how he did it and even saying that he drank blood from christopher which of course testimony from other inmates is never super viable no. and there's often, well, I mean, I guess this is from a juvenile thing. I'm not sure if he would have had that, a reason to get off. Jailhouse you know confessions always right. come into play. Right. And most of the times they're fucking not, not true. true. I mean, yeah. these are criminals we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And this guy they're even later on but. said in the West of Memphis documentary, he apologizes yeah, to he Jason because he's like, my testimony was mm-hmm. literally used to put you away. Mm-hmm. And it was a lie. It was a complete lie. So there you go, yet again, where the prosecution is literally just bringing in bullshit to Mm -hmm. try and do whatever they can to get these guys convicted. Mm -hmm. But perhaps the biggest piece of evidence in Jason's case was that a knife had been found at the bottom of the lake behind Jason's mobile home by police divers five months after the boy's arrest on November 17th, 1993. And they argued that this knife belonged to Damien. And the prosecution suggested involvement of this knife in the crimes, saying wounds on the boys were consistent with its serrations because this is a serrated knife. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the actual wounds that the boys had, there there really isn't, you know, like any wounds that are consistent with it. That's what mm-hmm. was so weird about it is like they found this knife and yet, you know, other mm-hmm. than puncture wounds, but it didn't actually look like it. Yeah, a serrated knife is used to like saw somebody. Like that's why there's those serrations is to actually saw through something. But I don't really see where they got, you know, they were able to say that this knife was used in the crimes at all. And that knife became a big media speculation too. The local news found out about it and reported from the lake saying that this was a huge discovery for the West Memphis 3 case. It was even more convincing to the public. Um, but it would be discovered later that this knife was thrown into the lake by Jason's mother 
one year before the homicides were even committed. Yeah, not only that, the media got tipped off that the police were about to make a discovery. Like, mm-hmm. the, I know. The police literally set it up so that the divers go in, know exactly mm-hmm. where to look for the knife. And what it's going to be. And, yep. But other testimonies included in the trial were those of two teenage girls, Jody Medford and Christy Van Vickle, who said they heard Damien Eccles confess to the murders at a softball game mm-hmm. in May. And that he claimed he was going to kill two more. More hearsay. Yeah. More speculation. That's their evidence. I know. It's ridiculous. They have nothing strong. Uh, It's crazy. They have this knife that's not even connected to the crime scene. Yeah. (sighs) And then hearsay and a false confession. But one of the main components of physical evidence that was used was fibers from the crime scene. So that's probably their strongest bit. And a lot of Mm -hmm. people hang on to this. They do. So one fiber found at the scene matched fibers found on one of Damien's shirts while another appeared to match a red house coat from Jason's house, considered as a secondary transfer. A fiber. Fibers are... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're everywhere and can be transferred super, super easily. Our fibers are probably all over this room, all over our house. Yeah. How about DNA? Mm -hmm. DNA is way more conclusive than fibers Mm because, I mean, anybody that's in forensic... Uh, criminology would would tell you that fibers are very tricky evidence because mm-hmm. it's very hard to tell where those fibers came from. There's and no way to really get yeah. an exact point on which it's transferred. They could say that it's from one of Damien's shirt, but you can't prove it 100% because you right. can't exclude other possible sources. So it's just not ensured that it can be from one particular source. Right. So let's talk about the defense. What did they use in order to help prove their you know, that Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were innocent. So they pushed that Christopher's mutilation would have taken a level of precision and that the teenagers couldn't have carried it out at night in the woods in the water. They also asked if Byers died from his injuries, wouldn't there be more blood? Wouldn't it have soaked into the banks? They argued that the knife attacks were too difficult to do all of them while in the water. So it must have happened somewhere else before the boys were brought to the ditch. And this countered the prosecution's narrative. Now, luminol was sprayed by the investigators at the scene, and it did come up with some hints suggesting that maybe there was blood present at the scene. However, soil tests were also taken in September of 1993, and they were proved to be inconclusive. There's no proof that there's even blood at the crime scene. Right. There's a possibility that these two boys were killed at some other location Mm -hmm. brought there, which I'm like... What doesn't make sense to me is that the fact that they're actually, you know, binded to their, their ankles. And that to me makes me believe that they were done. They did that some other place and then were brought there Mm -hmm. and we just don't know by who. Obviously as the defense for Damien and Jason, part of your plan is going to be to try to cast reasonable doubt Mm -hmm. on, you know, for the jury. And by doing that, you got to give them some other suspects. So, Mm -hmm. so that's when they start pointing towards John Mark Byers. Who is Christopher Byers' stepdad. And what's weird about John Mark Byers is he had given the documentary filmmakers who had worked on Paradise Lost. There's three of them, Yes, the very famous series of films done on this case. And the two guys that were working on this were named Joe and Bruce. And John Mark Byers had given them a knife as a gift. And weirdly enough, it had blood in its hinge. Like, what the hell? Mm Mm-hmm. Who gives someone a bloody knife as a gift, especially to someone who's working on a documentary about your son being murdered? Very strange. Um, It was also serrated. So that kind of fits along with the whole narrative. 
So Joe and Bruce turned it over to the police, and when it was tested, the blood type actually matched both Christopher and John Mark Byers, which led to inconclusive results. Mark Byers had also admitted to hitting Christopher mm-hmm. with a belt earlier on the day he went missing. So like we said earlier, when the police were looking at him as a possible person of interest suspect, they did take hair from him, both hair from the head and pubic hair. And they never found any sort of connection mm-hmm. which would tie him to the crime. Plus, he had an alibi. Mm-hmm. But they're hoping that this plants enough doubt in the jury's mind. So after all of the testimony and evidence that the prosecution had had been presented to the jury, jury deliberations began on March 17th. 1994 in Damien and Jason's trial. Deliberations ended up going into the next day of March 18th, 1994. And it was at that point that the jury found Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin guilty of capital murder in the deaths of the three children. Three days later on March 21st, 1994, Jason was given a sentence of life in prison and they handed down Damien Eccles the death penalty, both because he was over 18 at the time of the court decision, as some argue, because he had been made out as a leader in the mastermind of this crime. Like he was the main cult perpetrator here. So he got death, literally put on death row for this. So Jason is actually sent to the penitentiary at Pine Bluff, while Damien is sent to death row in the state's maximum security prison near Varner, Arkansas. Literally a month or two later, They appealed their convictions. All three of them did. And it actually went up to the Arkansas Supreme Court on February 19th, 1996. But the Arkansas Supreme Court issues a decision upholding the conviction of Jesse Muskelly. And then at the end of 1996, the Arkansas Supreme Court also issued decisions upholding the convictions of Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin. It was just crazy. It's crazy to think about that. Even the Arkansas Supreme Court did not see enough there to allow them just to get a new trial. That gives me zero confidence in our legal system. I mean, this case was weak as fuck. How did they not see a problem? Yeah, and I mean, look at all the other cases out there, like Uh even Julius Jones, like the Supreme, you know, the state Supreme Court won't do anything, won't even Uh give you a new trial when there's so much evidence Uh that suggests that you're innocent of the crimes that you've been convicted of. But How can they take that chance? It's just crazy. Yeah, and it's just like, again, comes back to the whole criminal justice system being broken. Like, mm-hmm. there, there's checks and balances. That's literally how it works. And the reason why there's an Arkansas Supreme Court at all is to, you know, sort of govern the local jurisdictions. And the fact that, you know, I, I think in a lot of times politics comes into play and they just don't want to go against yeah. each other and you or know, go they, back and look or at go possible back. mistakes and admit yeah, wrongs. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's what happened here. Mm-hmm. And Damien, you know, facing death is just terrifying. I can't imagine how he felt being on death row for something you didn't do has got to be the worst thing possible. Yeah. And as young as he was mm-hmm. too, I mean, he's 18, 19 he's years old life to live. Yeah. And they actually did a interview with him in 1996 uh, when he had just been put on death row. That's pretty, pretty telling about where where his mind is at at this time so we'll just play a little clip of that i think teenagers probably have trouble ever imagining um anything but immortality for themselves they seem to believe that they're indestructible i'm always the same way um 
I guess all teenagers are. They believe, I guess, nothing could ever happen to them. But when you wake up one morning and realize that you're on death row and you're waiting there day after day for them to set you an execution date, pretty hard reality check. I think you realize it's a pretty harsh world. I wouldn't change anything that's ever happened in my entire life. Nothing. Everything that has happened in my life has came together to create and make me the person that I am now. And if any of those things would change, then the person who I now am would not exist. I wouldn't think the same way about things. I wouldn't feel the same way about things. I don't think there was anything I could do to change that. What was it? I mean, become a clone, give up my personality, give up my identity. Just march along like everyone else. I'd rather die first. So after Damien, Jesse, and Jason went to prison for the deaths of the three boys, filmmakers that we already talked about from HBO, uh, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Zanofsky came together and decided to make a documentary series, which we briefly mentioned called Paradise Lost. There's actually three different films, and they kind of go through and, you know, investigate some of the different mm-hmm. things here and really started to bring to light into the public the fact that these three really had nothing to do with these crimes and that mm-hmm. you know there's other people that they should be looking at and so that the evidence was just weak as fuck and yeah and that the legal system the justice system had completely failed them mm-hmm. and that they should have never been found guilty mm-hmm. of these crimes Now, on the flip side, a lot of people would say that during these Paradise Lost films, there's a lot of questionable behavior displayed uh, by the three boys, especially Damien at the time. But then again, I mean, it's, you know, they're they're young. Damien's also not in the great greatest mental Mm-mm. place as well. Like, he was definitely dealing with some mental illness and, and things like that. So Probably depressed as hell, yeah, too. I, yeah, exactly. Like, he, he just got put on death row, like... Mm-hmm you know, what do you, what do you think he's going to act like? He's surrounded by people that are, you know, have done heinous acts on death row. So you gotta, you gotta take, you know, his behavior with a grain of salt, I think. But a lot of people do point out like there's total videos that I even watched on YouTube of people that have gone through the paradise lost films and been like, look at this, look at this, look at this, this is all weird. And how he says this or that. So there's a lot of people, you know, or there's some people that believe these things, three actually did commit these crimes and that mm-hmm. there's evidence in the paradise lost films that sort of backs that up. But then again, when I've looked at it, I don't see anything that's like, it's just more salacious stuff. Yeah. It, it doesn't, that to me just looks like it could be easily explained by the mm-hmm. circumstances that they're in. But these films really brought their case to the public and allowed them to really get a lot of celebrities to back them and get mm-hmm. behind their cause. And one of those people that, became completely enthralled by this case was a woman named Lori Davis. And after she saw the film, she became completely fascinated by Mm -hmm. Damien's case and she started writing to him and they actually ended up entering a relationship and then getting married while Damien was in prison in 1999, actually. And really Lori, Damien's wife really becomes, you know, the leader Mm -hmm. and leading the charge to free Right. The West Memphis Three. She really fought for them. Absolutely. 
her along with Eddie Vedder. He's probably mm-hmm. the, the biggest celebrity or one Man. of the strongest supporters of yeah. of the uh, West Memphis Three, especially Damien Eccles. Yeah, I mean, without Eddie Vedder and a few other celebrities, I don't know if they would have even gotten out. They, you know, raised so much noise about it mm-hmm. and really got people on board. Yeah. So they, you know, all these people are starting to speak out about it. And all the meanwhile, over the years, more and more information is coming out about how fucked up Mm -hmm. the actual trial was itself and how so many things that were told in court were just simply untrue. In fact, in 2004, Vicky recanted her statement saying that her testimony that Mm -hmm. Damien had taken her to that ASBAT had been a lie. Yep, completely made it up. And when the police originally wired for her house in 1993 to catch Damien saying something incriminating, Vicky said that he had never revealed that he had did anything, nor had he offered to help her to get involved in witchcraft. So all of that was just made a up. complete lie. Yeah. And this is why you can't go off of just hearsay, what someone says and rumors. Yeah. And also court. like the police are kind of bullies. In, in this case, like they bullied Vicky into doing this mm-hmm. and out of fear, she complied with their requests, but it ended up being complete bullshit. But perhaps the biggest development in the case came in 2007 when tests conducted by the defense and their independent investigators showed that the DNA. So they did recover a little bit of DNA mm-hmm. from the crime scene, but they right. didn't have any idea whose DNA it was. And according to this private investigation that they had conducted, that the DNA recovered from the crime scene or the victim's bodies could not be linked to the West Memphis Three and argued that a lack of sperm on swabs taken from the victims further problemized the notion that the boys had been sexually assaulted. Hair at the scene belonged to a third party and not the West Memphis Three. Mm-hmm. So with that, it's like if if the, the after testing the DNA that they had doesn't match any of those three... Mm-mm it seems like pretty simple, right? Like free them. They're clearly in prison. You just don't have any proof at the end of the day. Nope. Especially someone on death row. I know. Are you kidding? I know. That's insane. Yeah. Somebody's life is on the line and, and yeah. Based on rumors. Yeah. Stereotyping. So they actually go to judge Burnett who had proceeded over their cases before in September of 2008 and asked him to give them a retrial based on this new evidence. And the judge literally shot it down saying the DNA presented was inconclusive and was not proof of innocence, not even giving them a new trial. Mm -hmm. It's because he knows he's going to get totally exposed of you allowed this trial to go on when the prosecutor was saying all of this false shit, they were bringing all this false information into the courtroom. Like they don't want to admit it. No, they don't want to admit it. At this time, the defense team also argued that the pathologist, Frank Peretti, who we had talked about, who had conducted the autopsies, really had no reason to be doing them at all as he was not board certified. And he totally characterized the murders as this sexual ritualistic thing that they really were not because they actually had several independent pathologists, including well-known Vincent Mayo, look at the wounds and they stated that the wounds looked like they had actually occurred after death and did not seem to be knife related and were likely caused by animals. Because if you think, think about this for a second, they were in water submerged in water Mm -hmm. for a long period of time. And this ditch and this whole area of water that they were found in is known to have turtles in it. Mm -hmm. And they're like these big snapping turtles. And they're aggressive as hell. Mm -hmm. And they rip like flesh Mm -hmm. off. So it would make sense for them to start 
biting at the boys' bodies as they were, you know, decomposing in the water. Right. So they're saying that, you know, all of this evidence that they said was proof of satanic rituals could have been just animals that had been feeding off of the boys' remains. Which is interesting. I mean, that's still debated to this day. We recently listened to the Murder Squad's podcast on West Memphis 3, uh, Billy Jensen and Paul Holes. And Paul Holes brought up that he thinks maybe some of it was turtles, but um, the way that some of the incisions were made on the bodies seemed like it possibly could have been done by a human. I think there was without a doubt that the excision of the genitals, that Mm -hmm. particular wound had to have been done by a knife Mm -hmm. and by a human and somebody that, that was enjoying what they were doing while they killed these three boys. Like there was enough evidence there forensically looking at the bodies that it couldn't, all of the the damage done to the bodies could not have been just from animals that clearly somebody with a knife had done uh, some serious. Well, I think, the turtles would have done more damage, right. you know? Right. Um, so yeah, it could have been some of that, but it, it's definitely not, you can't definitively say that that's what it was. Right. It's very likely the person who did this actually did mutilate them. Yeah. It's just, just terrifying. But I mean, then again, forensic pathologists at the defense hire did, did say that some of the wounds that were on the bodies were post-mortem that they were not before while they were alive that afterwards, unless the person had gone and, added all of these puncture wounds and everything else, which is totally possible that the, um, you know, more likely situation was that it was, you know, the animals in the area. Cause they were, I mean, they were there overnight before they were found. So there's definitely yeah. a possibility for animals to, you know, uh, affect the way that the scene ended up. So when the defense was shot down by judge Burnett for a retrial, that's when they really stepped up the public awareness as far as like bring as many people to this celebrities, and you know, raise as much money as they can in order to gather the evidence that was required that the Judge Burnett said he needed in order to get the West Memphis Three another trial. So that's exactly what they did. There was actually a bunch of famous celebrity supporters of the West Memphis Three, including Johnny Depp, Winona Ryder, Eddie Vedder, Peter Jackson, and Fran Walsh, Natalie Maines, Henry Lawlins, Patti Smith, the Super Suckers, and a bunch of benefit CDs were released to help raise money, actually. And actually, in 2010, Eddie Vedder, Natalie Maines, and Patti Smith organized a benefit concert in order to help raise money for the West Memphis Three. But finally, years and years of raising awareness, gathering new evidence, and really just trying to get the West Memphis Three out to as many people in their case. On November 4th, 2010... Arkansas Supreme Court of Appeals finally ruled in favor of an appeal for the West Memphis Three based upon the case and evidence offered by the defense team. By that point, Pamela Hobbs and Mark Byers had both changed their minds and believed that the West Memphis Three were not guilty, and they were actually supporting freeing Mm -hmm. the West Memphis Three. However, Terry Hobbs and the Moore family maintained their belief that Damian, Jason, and Jesse had committed the murders. Right. Now, at this point, the attorney general was wary of retrying the case, not because they didn't believe that the West Memphis Three had done the crimes, but because of the deterioration of evidence and loss of memory of the witnesses who could be giving testimony. Whatever. They didn't have any evidence to begin with. And it was all deteriorated from the water anyway. Right. That's just an excuse. They just didn't want to have to do this. No, they didn't want to have to admit that they were wrong whatsoever. So they Mm -hmm. wanted to find a solution where the state doesn't have to admit any wrongdoing 
And doesn't and have to pay any money. Pay out any money for lawsuits mm. for being jailed for all of those years. So that's when they proposed to the West Memphis Three the Alford plea. You want to explain what the Alford plea is? Yeah, it's super weird. It's kind of hard to understand, but it's a plea where essentially you're remaining guilty. You know, you're still saying that you're guilty, like acknowledging that the state has enough evidence to give you a guilty verdict, but at the same time maintaining your innocence. It's basically a way for the state to get out of having to pay you or, you know, for you to sue them in any way and avoid, you know, a trial and all of that and be released automatically. It's very strange and it was uncomfortable for them too, especially Jason Baldwin did not like this Alfred plea because he was like, I'm so sure of my innocence and I want to be proven innocent. Yeah. You know, I don't want to have to go out and say I am guilty, but I'm innocent and this kind of weird thing. And well, yeah, because I mean, yeah, you're always known to be guilty of these heinous crimes. Technically, like on record. Yeah. Um, Even though when they so Damien and Jesse Miskelly accepted the Alfred mm -hmm. plea like right away. They're like, if I can walk out of prison today, I'll I'll say whatever and and we'll we'll agree to it. But Jason was like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this. And if Jason didn't agree to the Alfred plea, then Mm, all three of them, that was the way the deal was made was that all three would have to stay. And yeah, that's a lot of pressure on Jason um, who, if it wasn't that way, he probably would have chosen to stay in and not give an Alfred plea. I think his main reason for ending up giving that plea was to save his friends. He really cared about Damien, especially I'm sure he cared about Jesse too, but um, you know, he was really close to Damien and didn't want to see him have to continue time just because he wanted to continue the well, fight. Yeah. And yeah. So they eventually convinced him to go ahead and take the Alfred plea. And they yeah. did all three of them. Yeah. Well, because the alternative is that you wait for yeah. a trial and, and who knows, what who the knows when happen. that'll come. Like they'll drag their feet out. They yeah. knew the state would drag their feet on it and it could be another five, 10 years. And even if it, you know, you wait that long, you still have to get through it. And it's very possible they could pull some bullshit in that time yeah. and you'd get screwed anyway. So it's like, this is your chance. You got to take it. And yeah. they did. So on August 19th, 2011, Jason Baldwin, Jesse Miskelly, and Damien Eccles entered the Alford plea and were officially released from prison. Now we turn to the three men who are free tonight for the first time in 18 years, released after serving half their lives in an Arkansas prison. The men who came to be known as the West Memphis Three have always insisted they did not commit a brutal triple murder. And now a stunning decision to let them walk out the door. There's Damien Eccles. Nearly two decades after they were convicted of murdering three Boy Scouts, hogtied and left in a ditch, and four years after ABC News first broke word of DNA evidence that could exonerate them, today the West Memphis Three walked free. It's, it's been an absolute living hell. But at the end of the day, justice still had not been served for those three boys. The killer was still out there. If, you know, if these guys are not the ones who did it, then who really did? Right. So that brings us back to what other suspects are out there. And there's really not that many. So obviously we had talked about him before, but Mark Byers, you know, he, you know, had the whole situation with the knife that we talked about. So that that was really the main piece that kind of made people question, could he have done it? But then again, there is no you know, real means to do it or motive to do it. Mm -hmm. And he had an alibi that multiple people all accounted for. So 
there there really wasn't a way for him to have you know had anything to do with these crimes and actually uh, he ended up he actually just recently passed away oh, this month like a like a week wow. ago i think did yeah. he really yeah he died in a car crash oh my gosh 63 years old yeah so he's oh not gosh. even around anymore wow. mark byers Damn. but that, that leads us to pretty much i think at this point suspect number one uh, for most people i would say mm-hmm. is terry hobbs now, after Damien was released, he helped co-produce the documentary West of Memphis with Peter Jackson, and it covered evidence used by the defense to argue for the innocence of the West Memphis Three, but drew focus to a new suspect. And again, that's Terry Hobbs, who's the stepfather of Stevie Branch. Now, if you remember, we mentioned the hair that was found at the scene. And this actual hair has been compared to Terry Hobbs's hair. And they found that the hair is a close match for him, as well as another hair of another person who was found nearby, which closely matched his friend, David Jacoby, who we had talked about at the Mm -hmm. beginning, who he said he was with that night. Hanging out, playing guitar. Mm -hmm. So there's some actual evidence. Yeah, there's (laughs) some actual evidence right there. Yeah. And, you know, people say this is highly contested because people argue that it's very possible it could have just got there because you know they were at the house and blah blah mm-hmm. blah. but mm-hmm. still it's it's very weird but also terry's alibi about being with jacoby saying that he was at his house that evening however david jacoby says that there was two hours that evening that terry was not around mm-hmm. and he could not account for that to me is like one of the biggest yeah. red flags is that mm-hmm. there's two hours of Terry's alibi that nobody knows where he was. Right. And that's Doesn't enough time to go commit these murders. Absolutely, But could he have done it by himself? Yeah. That's the thing is there are three boys here. So a lot of people suggest that maybe David Jacoby, you know, did it Helped with him. him. Yeah. Participated. It wasn't in his way. hair possibly there. Right. Exactly. So yeah. how did that get there? Mm-hmm. And again, you got to remember that there was a neighbor that said she saw Terry calling to the boys the night they went missing, even though he claimed mm-hmm. to have not seen them. That's very weird as well. Also, Stevie's aunt and grandma said that he had confided in them that Terry hit him. Terry once admit to hitting Stevie. However, Terry was also accused of sexually abusing his stepchildren. Also, Stevie's pocket knife was found in Terry's lockbox of knives after the murder, which is obviously very suspicious because... The boy should have had that knife on him Mm -hmm. when they found his body. And yet, for whatever reason, Terry had his knife. That he always carried. Yeah. So that's a little weird. And Terry, Terry's one of those people, whenever you ask him, he has an answer for everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he just skirts around everything. But that's very suspicious. Also, Terry has somewhat of a violent past. In 1994, he was charged with aggravated assault for shooting his brother-in-law, Pam's brother, in the stomach. He had also hit Pam that night and there were accusations that he had beaten his former ex-wife as well earlier in the 1980s terry's neighbor mildred french said he broke into her house grabbed her breast while she was in the bathroom and she reported him to the police after he had left he came in and just grabbed her yeah, and just left. randomly went in what yeah. the fuck this guy's a freak yeah so there's i mean you got to look at his history there and you got to mm-hmm. question like is he capable of committing crimes like this absolutely i think so Especially because Stevie was worried enough to tell his aunt and grandma Mm -hmm. that he was mistreating him. Yeah. But to me, some of the most damning evidence was that Michael Hobbs Jr., so Terry's nephew, had actually been telling people 
that his uncle along with Terry had actually killed the three boys. Like they had bragged about it to him. Mm -hmm. Like he had firsthand knowledge from his uncle and Terry that they had literally murdered these boys and that it was the Hobbs family secret. Right. And the boy and all the boys that heard this from Michael Hobbs jr. Actually went to the police with these statements and passed polygraph tests. So it seems to be, you know, like they're telling the truth. Like this is what was actually said. And to me, I'm like, why aren't they like taking that and running with it? Why yeah. aren't they trying to pursue this more? No, I know it's very odd. Yeah. And even I think that would open up so many doors of them having to admit where they yeah, were wrong and mistakes absolutely. and where they were made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even Mark Byers suggested publicly that he believed Terry committed yeah, he did. the murders. Yeah. He did. literally came out. There's against a video Terry. clip, but Terry has always maintained his innocence and the Moore family also stands behind the belief that Terry did not do it. But to me, there's a ton of evidence mm-hmm. and a ton of questionable things that at least points to him being a possibility, being a possibility in mm-hmm. this for sure. So then where does that leave us? Well, not not really with anybody else that we can put a name to. I could totally have been someone random, a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Like there could have been plenty of, of ways for for people to have been out there with, you know, the opportunity to commit this crime that did. There's a. There's one theory. It's called mm-hmm. the Mr. Bojangles theory. And apparently on the night that the boys went missing, the manager at the nearby Bojangles restaurant, Marty King, called police to report that a disoriented black man with blood on his face and arm had entered the women's restroom. He left before officers arrived, so the police did not check the bathroom that night. Detective Byrne Ridge and Sergeant Mike Allen returned the next day to collect blood scrapings. But Detective Ridge admitted at the trial that those samples were never tested because they had been lost. I just don't understand how evidence gets lost. In so many cases, shit's lost. Yeah. What? You'd think you'd be really careful with evidence. Mm-hmm. Like, especially blood and DNA. How does that get lost? It seems really convenient. Seriously. But yeah, not, I mean, there was no, because the evidence got lost, there was no way to even know if mm-hmm. he was involved in the murders at all. I mean, there's a good chance that he was. He could have been if and it's a real story. Absolutely. And yeah, it checks out. Yeah. Well, and like people that, you know, opponents of this theory say that the man was reportedly wearing a cast on one of his arms. So it would have been very difficult for him to restrain mm-hmm. three children. That's a good point. Which yeah. then again, I mean, how do we even know that that's true or not? We don't because, mm-hmm. I mean, people see a lot of stuff in yeah. situations like that. But yeah, that's one of the theories that's out there that we'll just never even know. We don't even know who this guy was. We mm-hmm. weren't able to identify him or anything because uh, the authorities really messed up the investigation of that and didn't, didn't probably take it as seriously as they should have. There's also reports that a few weeks prior to the boys going missing, there was a white or black van that was stalking the neighborhood children uh, then again, you know, this was seen multiple times by different witnesses in the weeks leading up. But then again, like, how do you know a van is stalking somebody? Like mm-hmm. if it's just kind of driving around the neighborhood, there could be a million other reasons for why that was, you know, the case. But could it have been somebody stalking children? Maybe. Possibly, yeah. Um, but also there was uh, another theory that uh, a mysterious hitchhiker, sometimes called the Tattooed Man, uh, an individual named Ken Govar, who was traveling east on I-40, picked up a hitchhiker on the road about 20 miles outside of Little Rock. And the, met, and the man said he was heading to Knoxville, Tennessee. He was described as intense, angry. And what was most peculiar to Govar was the fact that he had a large tattoo of a devil on his forearm. 
And when they arrived in West Memphis at 3.30 p.m., the hitchhiker insisted on being left there, even though he could take him further along. And basically, he just asked to be let out of the convenience store on the south side of the interstate. So people point to maybe this could have been the guy that, that did these murders. But, you know, because mm. a hitchhiker could be a serial killer. I mean, could you never be, know. But, I mean, it really could be anything, right? I mean, there's not any strong evidence for that theory. Yeah. I think there's the most evidence for Terry. Yeah. It, it, to me, all signs point to Terry. I mean... Another point that I should mention, though, is that Terry specifically told Pam that he didn't like that Stevie was taking attention away mm-hmm. from him. Mm-hmm. Like he was envious of Stevie because he wanted all of Pam's attention. And Terry just honestly seems like that type of like mm-hmm. creepy individual who would do be like that. And, you know, Terry, just the way he acts and he's so quiet and like he definitely keeps a very low profile as to not draw attention to himself. So. To me, he definitely seems like suspect number one. But beyond Terry, there's really no other leads. I mean, this this case is, you know, it's closed because Damien and right, Jason and Alfred Jesse said guilty. So according to the state, the case is closed, solved. Mm-hmm. They got, you know, Such justice bullshit. was served. But meanwhile, the person who did it is probably still out there. Yeah. And Pam Hobbs wow. and, you know, the Miskelly family believe that. You know, their children were innocent. But to kind of wrap everything up with this, after being released from prison, uh, Damien Eccles went on to, you know, really, you know, help try to, you know, further the cause and, Mm -hmm. you know, freeing people that are in prison that have committed crimes that they, they never committed. And he went on to write a bunch of books about his experiences on death row. Um, And Jason Baldwin also uh, spoke out about, you know, his experiences and everything. And both of them are very, you know, still very much in the public eye. They still do Mm -hmm. interviews and, you know, media and stuff. But Jesse Miskelly was the only one that remained in Arkansas. And as far, we don't really even know where he's at these days because he doesn't really have a social media presence or anything like that. He probably just wants some space. Yeah. As far as we know, he's like, you know, working, working in Arkansas, just, you know, trying to live his life. Yeah. I think they've, uh, they've all handled this trauma differently you know and for Damien and Jason it's been helpful for them to speak out absolutely Jesse's just a different type of person you know he doesn't want to have that type of media you know yeah it's it's a lot of pressure it is a lot of pressure well people constantly questioning Mm -hmm. you and you know just taking you back in his life Yeah. yeah absolutely I'd probably be like him But at the end of the day, we always want to remember the victims of this heinous crime. And hopefully there's justice for them one day, a true justice for them, that the person that actually committed these crimes is is brought to justice. I really hope that happens. Because at the end of the day, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore lost their lives in May 1993 at only eight years old. They had their whole lives ahead of them. Mm -hmm. So it's always important to remember that and, you know, Hopefully, hopefully there's, you know, justice that comes, you know, the real person's caught. Hopefully Terry Hobbs is one day, you know, I, I think all signs point to mm-hmm. Terry. But I mean, what does that look like? If, if the case is closed, can they even reopen it? Can that happen? Is it even a possibility? I think if there's enough evidence, yes. If something new comes out, maybe. But they'd have to, 
or he confesses or something. There'd have mm. to be something major that ties him to the actual crimes, which. And then would they have to go back in and like reverse their Alfred please and take uh, innocent? No, I think or, once that's done, it's done. I, I don't weird. know. Yeah. It'd be a new case and everything. It'd be nice to have a legal expert here right now to yeah. help answer some of these yeah, questions. I'm really sure, but. Let us know if you guys know. Yeah, definitely let us know. But but yeah, again, that's, that's like a very brief, as, yeah. as long as that was, this it's very brief. There's so much to it. There's so many details, so mm-hmm. many different, you know, rabbit holes you can go down with it. So yeah, you can watch documentaries, you know, obviously you can watch Paradise Lost, but also uh, Devil's Knot and um, West of Memphis is the newest one. Yep. Done that on was HBO. one done by uh, Peter Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really good. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's not like you can a hundred percent rule out the West Memphis three as the ones no. not doing it. Cause like at the end of the day, we don't know, but that's the point of the legal system is for them to prove beyond a reasonable doubt mm-hmm. that somebody committed these crimes. And yeah. in this case, whether or not the West Memphis three actually committed the murders is one thing, but to actually prove that they did, and, you know, there's so much clear misconduct here and lying mm-hmm. that they should not have ever been no. convicted of these crimes mm-hmm. and imprisoned for 20 years. Like that should have just never happened because there wasn't enough evidence there. And yet the system totally screwed them over and, and they ended up in jail while the real killer may still be walking, mm-hmm. you know, out there free. So yeah, this case was a mess from the start. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and uh, get into, uh, <laughs> if you're still still there, let's go ahead and talk about some of the, I, what do we even call these now? I know, outro topics, I guess. I some know, maybe shit some we thought was interesting this week. Come up with a name for this. Yeah. Like weekly news. I don't know. I need like a good name for this. But the, the first thing is there's a new swine flu virus. That's great. <laughs> That's just excellent. If 2020 could get any worse, here it is. A new virus that has global pandemic potential, scientists are saying. Great. Could be the new H1N1, and it comes from pigs, apparently. So it's called G4EA H1N1, mm-hmm. known as G4. And apparently it's similar to the H1N1 we experienced back in 2009, which came from pigs in Mexico. I survived that shit. Me too. Oh, yeah, you had it yeah, too. I had you it got too. the H1N1? Mm-hmm. Sucked. Mm-hmm. I don't think I did. You would I would have remembered yeah. if I did. Yeah. <laughs> it was Actually, shitty. I don't even know if I've ever even had the flu, like the full-blown flu before. It's pretty shitty. Yeah, yeah. it looks shitty for sure. <laughs> yeah, you've been pretty healthy in 10 years I've known you. really haven't I've had gotten pneumonia once. Did you actually get pneumonia, diagnosed with yeah, it? Yeah, I had walking pneumonia While we were together? Once. No, oh. no, no. Okay, As so a I'm child. saying last 10 years, dude. No, last 10 years? Nothing. Knock Nothing. on wood, I've been healthy as a as a an ox man. Healthy so, as an ox. Hell yeah. Okay. As an oak tree. So I don't know. I have good genetics or something. I don't know what it is. Or I'm just healthy. Well, that's really I scary because we're it is very scary. currently dealing with a bit of another pandemic. So what the hell? I don't even know what we do if this turns into Are, a global pandemic. We're gonna be wearing masks forever. Yeah. Pretty soon our clothes are all gonna be designed to be like built in, you know, remember that one company we talked about that we were like kind of oh, laughing yeah. about like this oh, LA yeah. company is designing this the suit. Suits. Yeah. Right. Like that could be a real thing. Yeah. If you didn't see that episode, they were like kind of space suits that you could, you know, party in was the idea. Yeah. That like filters all the air, keeps mm-hmm. you safe you from could go to raves and concerts. Maybe that'll be our world. Like it'll be, if you don't have your suit on, you're at real risk to get this, you know, swine flu or oh, the gosh. COVID. Like, it's just crazy at this point. Yeah. 
Well, let's hope that doesn't blow up into some big thing. It also could be possible that the media is, or some of the media that's reporting on this is trying to elevate it a little bit because everyone is so sensitive right yeah. now. Well, yeah. I mean, the media is always looking for clicks mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, they're always going to post headlines that are going to get people to be like, oh, shit, is this really good? What's going on? So, mm-hmm. I mean, who really knows? But look, we're going to end this episode with random knots. Yes. This is something you guys have been wanting us to talk about for a really long time. There is this, I guess, what is it even? How do you describe it? It's not only really a trend. No, it's it's really more of like a theory, really, that's put forth. And, you know, mainly it's built into this app called Randonautica, which uses a random number generator, which then creates a random set of coordinates. But these coordinates are allegedly directed by your intention. So mm-hmm. when you it's actually... Like manifestation. Right, exactly. So when you download the app, you actually, it asks you for your intention first. You can, a lot of people do death, love, you know. Death, your yeah. intention's death. Some people have done death. Or they're like, I want to find something paranormal. Crazy story. Or- um, so somebody put recently put death as their intention. And this girl, she went to the coordinates that the app tells you to go to. And she came upon a guy who had just been shot. And this was actually in Aurora, Colorado. Really? So, you know, not that far. And wow. she actually came upon him and he was like there with his, uh, one of his family members. He was like bleeding from a gunshot and like it ended up being in, you know, the news and everything. Yeah. I mean, this has really gotten popular on TikTok. Um, people show their experiences using the app and see and showing what they find. And obviously there's a lot of videos where it seems really fake. Um, but then there's some like that, that are real instances of this app, like kind of weirdly working and it's really odd. And there was a recent story that just blew my mind. When I first saw it, I thought it was fake, but it's real. So back in June, there was a group of teenagers who were using the app and they ended up getting, you know, their coordinates to go to a certain spot. And when they went there, they found a suitcase and they're kind of like pushing at the suitcase. And then they start talking about how it smells bad. And then they open it up and it's got black bags in it, trash bags. And immediately when I saw it, I was like, that really does look like a body. If this isn't staged, this is a body. And it turns out that, you know, they make this big TikTok and everything. And it turns out that this is a real body. They call the police and they come out to the scene and they're, this was in Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah, there really was a yeah, body they there. Yeah, in a case that they, they had uh, opened there. Mm-hmm. Which right now the remains are still unidentified or unknown. Um, it's not been confirmed who they are or if it's more than one set of remains. You know, it hasn't been connected to a case yet or anything like yeah. that. But it's pretty crazy. And this app, I mean, what is the deal with this? So I wanted to give a little bit more details as far as my understanding about what random nodding is actually is about from a more a deeper level. So mm-hmm. it's not just like this total random thing per se. They're using this as sort of an experiment. Mm-hmm. The developers behind the app are are have been doing a ton of research. I believe that it's called Project Fathom or something. And you know they're looking. There's a lot of people that believe they're you know on a quantum level. There's this matrix that we're all part of mm-hmm. that you know, we're all sort of plugged into this matrix and there's all these quantum points and we actually interact with the matrix and this quantum world and through our consciousness, our consciousness is somehow tied into it. So we can actually create the reality 
uh, through our mind. The, they're looking at the mind-body connection is what mm-hmm. they're really at and the mind-reality connection. Like, can your mind truly create things for you? So with the help of this app, you're able to kind of tap into this quantum world and through your intentions, that's why they make you set your intention. Mm-hmm. And if you're really tied into everything, then you're going to be able to produce something related to your intentions or it's going to lead you to a synchronicity in the mm-hmm. world where you know some people come across you know they come across a, a gate a no trespassing sign time and time again and and they're using love or something and so therefore maybe that is the you know universe or or you know quantum world the matrix telling you that you ain't gonna find it yeah you're <laughs> or you're looking for it in the wrong places or it's a yeah. symbol for something else mm. like a lot of people that are having bad luck with it may not necessarily just not, you know, it's just bullshit. It's just not working for them. They're just not interpreting the actual coordinates that they're going to correctly. So, Uh you know, Hmm. whereas other people are literally putting like dog in there and then literally, or cat. And then they're literally, the points are taking them to a place where there's just like a stray cat, a stray dog there. Like I've seen all sorts of, of really weird things. And Mm -hmm. You know. How much do you know? How much of it is true? Well, like, that's the thing. There's we don't. TikTok. Yeah, I mean, you don't know what's true yeah. and what's not. But from the stuff that looks like is true, it is pretty cool what what it's doing. I, I mean, we'll, try it. we'll have to go out and spend a, a yeah. day just randonauding and my and higher crew goes randonauting <laughs> and just I, see. We kind of want to make our own TikTok. Maybe that'll be our first TikTok. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's really interesting, and I think. Uh, there's definitely something to it. And, you know, when you understand the deeper layer to it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Honestly. Well, I understand all that. And I do believe in that concept, whether or not I believe the app actually works right, for that. Right. Is up for well, the that's bait, the thing is know? I don't know how the app's program. Right. There's an algorithm they say that runs on the app that somehow correlates your intention with coordinates, I believe. So how they're getting these coordinates, I don't know. There's something, some type of algorithm. How are they measuring algorithm. intention? Yeah, I was going to say, are you typing your intention in? Right. Yes. Or, oh, you are? Yes. Uh, you actually put, that's the first that's thing that it makes you do is put an intention in before it kicks you out coordinates. Well, it's like, of course, there's these instances of it working and weird things right. happening. But how many times does it not actually work. happen at yeah. all for people? And they go and there's nothing there. Well, yeah. And I mean, if you look at the reviews on the app, the reviews aren't very good. Yeah. Uh, they're starting to go down because a lot of people are just not having any luck with it at all. It's not leading them. You know, they're seeing all this TikTok stuff and they're like, oh, it's going to take me to some scary shit. If I put gold in here, it's going to take me to a (laughs) pot of gold somewhere and it's not how it works. So, Uh, well, I want to know if any of you have had an experience with that app and let us know what it was like. We'll do some random on it. We should. We should. With that being said, that's it for us this week, (laughs) you guys. Thanks again for joining us. For another episode of the Mile Higher Podcast. Yes, stay safe. And stay woke.